Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will, get, I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Oh dear God, we, we come to you in humility, recognizing that we are not adequate to live faithfully apart from your help. And we want hope an encouragement this morning to come from your word. So I pray, Father, with the Apostle Paul, that you would send your spirit of wisdom and revelation to help us to understand your word, that you might enlighten our minds, that you might emblazon our hearts, you might activate our wills to live in obedience. And that, Father, that Jesus Christ might be lifted up as a result of our time in your word this morning. He might be lifted up in our words and lifted up in our hearts. We might be all the more faithful to live in light of his return. We thank you, Father, for these precious words. Help us now as we seek to understand them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, it, it wasn't too long ago that Tina and I, we actually used to enjoy watching the news. You know, we put the kids to bed and finished cleaning up the house. And we're getting ready for the next day, and we turn on the news at the end of the day to find out what's happening in the world and keep up with the political conversation. That used to be an enjoyable time. Now, honestly, I, I can't even watch the news anymore. Because if I do, I either get angry, or I cry, or I just shake my head in utter disbelief. And just when I think it can't get any worse, somehow it always does. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean... Our country is literally tearing itself apart over all kinds of issues, like FBI raids and nuclear war deterrence and big tech oversight and immigration policies and climate change crises and educational philosophies in public schools, foreign aid bills. I mean, the list could go on and on, and every month it's a new list. And it's to those who are uh, watching this, a lot of us, we just can't even handle the political turmoil anymore. And so we just want to tune out because it's just overwhelming what's happening. And yet, for Christians, 
for those of us who are looking at the world through the eyes of faith and with a biblical worldview, we recognize that there's something else happening. Something much deeper is at work. Something honestly more sinister than these divisive political issues that good people, in most cases, could even disagree about. What we see now happening in our world more clearly is an open hostility to Christianity, where during the pandemic, marijuana places were essential and allowed to be open, but churches had to shut down. Or we see an open rebellion against God's law where governors are now running billboards in other states inviting people to come and get an abortion in their states and even quoting a Bible verse to go along with that to justify it. And we see an open rejection of God's created order where under the guise of inclusivity guidelines, kids in school are told that they're allowed to choose their own gender in whatever bathroom or locker room or sports team they want to be on. And so this moral erosion is happening so fast that a lot of us are left shocked and we're dismayed. And it seems like as time marches on, we're just told over and over again that you, Christians, you're just on the wrong side of history. That Christianity is going to lose. So we're left asking, what, what is happening in our world in a way that we didn't really recognize before? And where is our hope to be found in light of what is happening in this world? And, and I think this chapter, Psalm chapter 2, explains what is happening in our world. And it points us to where we can find our hope. And this psalm doesn't pull any punches. One, one preacher described this psalm as a, as a barn burner. Because it just comes with such ferocity as you just march through these 12 verses. So Psalm chapter 2 is written by David. It's not identified by David here in the psalm, but we know that from Acts chapter 4 actually refers to David as the author. And it's 12 verses long, and it breaks down into four stanzas of three verses each. And the first three verses are titled The Rebellion of the Nations. The Rebellion of the Nations. Look again at, at verses 1 and 2. Here's what... David writes, he says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. What we see in these verses is a complete rebellion by the nations. They're, they're in open insurrection against God and against his anointed. The, the, nation, the nations are raging against God, it says. And they're raging against God's rule. And it's not an uncoordinated rebellion either. No, it says they're, they are devising, they're plotting. It says that they are taking counsel together. They're at work together to do this. And it says, and it's not a localized uprising either. It's not like just little pockets. Look what it says. It says the, the nations, plural, the peoples, the kings, the rulers, everyone, every unbeliever, all the nations are raging against God. They're all shaking their fist at God, saying we want to do what we want to do, including our country, the United States of America. 
their complete defiance against God, shaking their fist at him. And, and what are they rebelling against? What are they rebelling against? Why are the nations so upset? Well, look at verse 3. It says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The, the nations are shaking their fist at God because they're rejecting God's moral law. They, they think God's rules are a chain. Their bonds are cords that have tied them up like a straitjacket. And they don't want to be in that. And they're, so they're breaking it off. And they want to do what they want to do. They, they don't want anyone to tell them what to do. They don't want to be told how many genders there are. They, they don't want to be told who they can sleep with or who they can't. They don't want to be told that they can't murder their own infants if that's what they want to do. They're making up their own rules because they don't like God's rules. And so they're bursting them off to live however they want to do. So they've rejected the creator and everything about his creation and his created order that he set in place. And I think for Christians, there's, there's a lesson here for us as we think about this reality. See, a lot of times we're, when we run into this kind of moral revulsion against God's law, we're like surprised. Like, oh my goodness, I can't, I can't believe they're doing this. But, but why are we surprised when unbelievers live like unbelievers? This is, this is what they do. They, they hate God's law, and they don't want to live in light of it. We, we live in a, a country, a world among people who hate God. They're not neutral to God. They're not indifferent. They actually hate God. And they hate his rule in their life, and they reject it. They want to do what they want to do. You see, this, this time that we're living in now between the first and the second coming of Christ is not a time of ease. It's not a time of indifference. It's a time of tribulation. It's a time of persecution. It's a time when Christians will have to fight to live faithfully in this world because the nations are raging. And this is the world we're living in. We should expect it to be difficult to be a Christian. We shouldn't be undone by this rebellion against God. We should understand that this is the world we're living in. The nations are raging and plotting against God and against his anointed and against his people and against anyone who'd stand with them. That's what they're doing. And yet, one more thing before we leave these verses. Will this rebellion work? Will the nations ultimately be successful? Well, it's, the answer is right in that first line. Look what it says. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot, look at this word, in vain? It's, it's, their rebellion is foolish because it's ultimately going to be in vain. It's, it's a vain effort. It's, it's a futile effort. It's not actually going to work. They don't know that now, but it's going to fall apart. It looks like they're winning. It looks like the rebellion against God is on the ascendancy and it's rising. And so we might think, oh my goodness, that's who's going to win in the end. But that's not true. We know it's not ultimately going to work. We know it's not going to work because of who they're rebelling against. And that's what takes us to the next set of verses. Verses 4 to 6 is the rebuke of the Lord. And so look, look how... Look how the beginning of verse 4 starts off. So 
we have the first three verses about the nations raging and they're bursting off their cords. And look, look what it says in verse 4. It, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, he could have just said, God laughs. But he said, he who sits in the heavens. He's, he's not sitting on a, on a lawn chair, right? He's, he's, not, he's not sitting on a beach chair. No, he's sitting on his throne in heaven. So what, what utter foolishness of these nations to rebel against a God who sits enthroned in the heavens. I mean, think back in the book of Genesis when the people try to build their tower to show their greatness, to get up to the heavens, to shake their fist at God. So they're building this massive tower. They thought they were the, the most powerful people in the world. And they were so impressed with themselves. Meanwhile, God's like, oh, what's something going on down there? He's got to like squint to see, is something happening? He's, he's enthroned in the heavens. This is a little anthill to him. He's not, he's not undone. He's not uh, uh, unsure of what's going to happen. They, they thought they were big stuff because they didn't know who they were up against. So I, I try to think of an illustration to explain this. And so uh, when I was growing up, we, uh, me and my brothers, we loved having water gun fights. Most of the time, we just had those little squirt guns, you know. But then one summer... They came out with super soakers. Oh, we, we thought that was the coolest thing. And we, we begged my parents, oh, please, please buy us some super soakers. So my, my parents took us to Toys R Us. And my youngest brother, he got the super soaker 25. My next brother, he got the super soaker 50. And then me, because I was the oldest, I got the super soaker 100. And, and we thought we were the baddest boys around. So we got our, we went home, we flipped up our water guns, and we just started patrolling the neighborhood <laughs> with our combined super soaker power of 175. And we were looking for a fight. Come on, who's out there? So we go around, and we're marching around the neighborhood, and all of a sudden, we, we turn the corner, and I lived in the, the same, that lived in the same house all growing up, and I saw these two boys across the street that I'd never seen before. And I looked across the street, and they each had super soakers as well. But they were twins, and they both had Super Soaker 200s. I was like, oh, my goodness, I didn't even know those things existed. We, we looked each other in the eye. We looked down at our guns. I looked at my brothers and I looked at each other, and we just ran away. We didn't even fight them. We're like, oh, no, we can't handle that. We thought we were big stuff until we ran into somebody bigger than us. And, and here, here's the irony of this comparison here in Psalm chapter 2. It's, it's one thing for, like, a super soaker 175 factor against a super soaker 400, okay? But when you're talking about how the nations are rebelling against God, the one who's enthroned in the heavens, it's, it's no competition. It'd be, it'd be more like me and my brothers with our water guns going against a platoon of Navy SEALs and their M4 rifles. It's just, it's just laughable because it's not even a competition. It's a joke. This is an absolute joke that these... Nations want to rage against God, the one who's enthroned in heaven. It's not even a competition. In fact, it says in verse 4 that he who sits in the heaven laughs. This is not a, a laugh of jovality. He's not having fun at them. It's, it's a laugh of rebuke. He's, he's rebuking them in this laugh. He's mocking them and their pathetic efforts at defiance against God. It's absolute foolishness to rebel against God. It's vanity. 
And this laughing turns to derision. He says he holds them in derision. God is scoffing at them. God detests their rebellion. And then it says in verse 5, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God's not laughing anymore. He's coming in his wrath and his anger and his fury. You know, in, in some Christian circles, preachers don't really talk about the wrath of God. It's not considered polite or it's not considered something that people like to hear about. And so we downplay the idea that God is angry at sinners. You know, a few years ago, the PCUSA, which is a liberal Presbyterian denomination, they were creating a new hymnal. And they wanted to choose songs they put in their hymnal. And they really wanted the song, In Christ Alone. I think that's a song you guys sing here as well. They wanted to include that in their hymnal, but they wanted to edit one of the lines. They wanted to take out the line that talked about God's wrath being satisfied in the cross. And they wanted to change that. Because they didn't want that in their hymnal and the version that they sang in their church. Now, thankfully, the editor, the writers of the song rejected that. They didn't want the song changed because they think it reflected what the Bible taught. So it wasn't included in their hymnal. But it just shows how even people that claim the name of Christ are trying to downplay that. Now, maybe we can look at that. Okay, those uh, liberal churches, that's what they do. But even sometimes in more conservative churches, we too can downplay the wrath of God. We don't talk about it the way the Bible talks about it. Let, let me give you an illustration. Go, go ahead. Um, maybe you've heard the, the phrase that uh, God hates the sin but loves the sinner, right? Well, flip over to Psalm chapter 5 for a second. Just a few verses over. You, 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 can't, you can't go anywhere in the Bible before you just run into God's wrath. I mean, six chapters in, in the book of Genesis, God's wiping out every member of humanity except eight people in his wrath. But look in Psalm 5.5. 5. It says, the, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So it is absolutely true that God hates sin. And it is absolutely true that God does love sinners. I mean, that's the glorious truth of the gospel, right? What does Romans 5, 8 say? In that while we are yet sinners, God demonstrated his love toward us by giving his own son. So of course God loves sinners. If he didn't love sinners, we'd have no hope of the gospel. But it's also true, the Bible also teaches, according to Psalm 5.5, that God actually does hate sinners. God, God doesn't just throw sin into hell, whatever that means. He casts sinners into hell. They're the objects of his holy hatred and his just wrath. And so we don't want to downplay what the Bible teaches. We're not going to edit the words of the, song, of the hymn when we sing it, and we're not going to change the words of what the Bible teaches. If the Bible says it's true, then we must believe it. So the Bible teaches that God's wrath is real and it's true, and we don't want to downplay it. We don't want to ignore it. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe in God's wrath. I mean, th think about it. What, what, what really scares you? What, what keeps you up at night? What occupies your mind and emotions that gets you all worked up? Sometimes I think we're 
more, wor more wor terrified about diseases or economic collapse or inflation. All these things are things that get us all worked up. But are we more energized about temporal earthly judgments than eternal cosmic judgments? We want to make sure our priorities are right. We understand that God's judgment is coming against sinners and that it's real. That it's coming against everyone who's in rebellion against God. And I think it'll change the way we live. It'll change what we're worried about. It'll change our passion in sharing the gospel and warning these sinners of the wrath to come. So how is it that God is going to show this anger he talked about in verse 5? Well, look at verse 6. This is what God's going to do about it. He says, as for me, verse 6, this is what I'm going to do about this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is how God's going to respond to this rebellion. He's going to send his king to rule over the nations and to be his instrument of judgment. And that leads us to the next set of verses. Verses 7 to 9. Verse 7 to 9 are the reign of the king. Look how it starts off. The reign of the king. It says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The decree. I mean, that's just interesting language here. So, so what, what is God doing through Jesus Christ, his anointed king? What God is doing is not some ad hoc response. It's not like God's called off guard by this rebellion. It's not like he's up in heaven scrambling, oh no, the, the nations, I created all these nations and now they're rebelling and I'm trying to keep to stop that. And he's like running around and he's like, un, he's like unsure about what's happening and he's undone. He's like, well, I guess, all right, we'll try plan A and that didn't work. All right, well, I guess, I guess I'll try plan B. Oh shoot, man, that didn't work either. Okay, I guess I'll try plan C. No, that's not, that's not, how, that's not how God orders his world. It says, it says he's doing this according to his decree. This is God's plan. This is his eternal decree. What is happening is exactly what God has decreed to happen. This is not a surprise to God. This is not some outside force forcing God to do something he didn't want to have happen. God's not frustrated by this rebellion. He has this plan already in place. And here's what his plan is. It says in verse 7, as it goes on, the Lord said to me, now this gets a little confusing, right? This is the Lord, Yahweh, saying to me, this is the Davidic king. So this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. So here we have, in the rest of verse 7 here, we have a, a conversation within the Trinity. We have God the Father speaking to God the Son. So we get a window into this inner Trinitarian relationship. And here's what he says. He says, Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now that, that could trip you up a little bit. Because what do you mean today I've begotten you? I mean, isn't God the father, the eternal father to the eternal son? So why does he say today you become my son? What's he talking about here? Well, I need to explain this just for a second. The Bible refers to Jesus' sonship in different ways, and it doesn't always mean the same thing. I think the language he's drawing on here is actually from 2 Samuel 7. So turn back with me briefly to look at this. In 2 Samuel 7, we have here when 
God is giving to David his Davidic covenant. But look at the language he uses. So starting in verse 12, 2 Samuel 7, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body. So he's saying, all right, so David, long after you're dead, one of your descendants is going to inherit this promise. So it's not going to be for you directly, but it's going to be someone who comes from your line. And he says, I will establish his kingdom. So this descendant of you, David, I'm going to establish that kingdom through him. He says, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Now he adds this word, forever. Okay, well, this is no mere man then, because this kingdom is going to last forever. And then he says in verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So now God is using this language of father and son to refer to not the eternal son, but this king's son. This one who comes in the line of David, who will be the king whose kingdom lasts forever. Then I will call him my son. But when does that happen? When is this today of verse 7? Today I have begotten you. When did Jesus become the king? When does he inherit this power and authority? When does he actually start his rule? Well, these verses actually in Psalm 2 are quoted several times in the New Testament. Let's look at one of them in Acts 13. Flip over to Acts 13. In Acts 13, this is Paul's speech in the synagogue. He's quoting a lot of Old Testament passages, but look at verse 32. Acts 13, 32 says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers. Now, okay, when he says that, he's talking about what we just read. He's talking about 2 Samuel 7. This promise to the fathers way back then. We bring you the good news that what God promised the fathers, what he promised back then, this, verse 33, he's fulfilling to us. So he promised it back then, but it's coming to fulfillment now. He's fulfilled to us, their children. And how did he fulfill this promise? Look what he says. By raising Jesus in his resurrection is when God gives Jesus the power and authority and he establishes him as the reigning king. He says, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus fulfilled, God fulfilled that promise to Jesus that way back in 2 Samuel when Jesus rose from the dead. One more verse, Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. We could skip over these verses if we don't see them in context. Romans chapter 1, verse 3 says, Concerning his son who was descended from David. So here we have the idea, right? This one that was going to come down from David. According to the flesh. And he had, was declared to be the son. And so he was, this, this line of David inheritor, right? This descendant from David is now declared to be the son of God in power. The king's son. When? Look what it says. According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So, back in Psalm 2, when he says, today I have begotten you, he's referring to when Jesus is resurrected, he installs him as his king. Now, what does this matter? Why do I go into all that detail? That seems like a lot of minutia to explain. I think the reason this is important is because it explains the difference between Christ's first coming 
and his second coming. When Jesus came the first time, 2,000 years ago, he came as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, to pay the penalty for our sin, to die on the cross. And he didn't come in judgment. He didn't come fighting his enemies. He came and received the wrath of God through the hands of his enemies. But at the conclusion of his earthly ministry, he rose from the dead. And God installed him then as his king. And he's ascended to heaven right now. So when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back the second time as a sacrificial lamb. When he comes back, he comes back as the resurrected and reigning and installed king. And when he comes back, he's going to receive the inheritance that is his as the king. That's why the second coming looks so different than the first coming. And so that's why verse 8 God promises, ask of me. This is this Jesus, ask of God the Father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. So these, these same nations, right? These same nations that are in rebellion, you own them. They're your inheritance. You're going to take possession of them. When you come back, you're going to take all these rebellious sinners, squash the rebellion, and you're going to own all the nations. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. That's why it's so different when he returns as the exalted and victorious and resurrected and reigning king. And he's going to receive this inheritance as his. And look what verse 9 says. It's not a pretty sight when Jesus returns. It's not a pretty sight. Look at verse 9. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The, the image here is that Jesus is going to take his reigning scepter like a baseball bat and just smash them like clay pots. But he's not just squashing the rebellion. He's actually squashing the rebellious sinners. Look what it says. It says, he... Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what Jesus is going to do when he returns. And these same verse, verse 9, is actually quoted as well in Revelation 19. I'm talking about the return of Christ. Look at that briefly. Revelation 19. This is the description of the end of the Bible when Jesus returns. It says in verse 11, this is Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And look here at the next line. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Quoting Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So all these kings, they think they're big stuff. The king of kings is going to return and destroy them all. If they're in open rebellion to God, they'll be crushed. Now, 
at this point, you might be asking, <laughs> well, isn't God love? I mean, will God really bring all of this vengeance and wrath and fury on all these people? What, what hope is there for rebellious sinners who are stuck in this rebellion? Well, that's where the last three verses of the psalm come in. That's where the good news comes. Verses 10, 11, and 12 are about the refuge in the Son. The refuge in the Son. So now here in verse 10, the psalm switches, and now he's addressing directly these kings that are in rebellion. He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. He's talking directly to them now. He's got a word to these rebellious, unbelieving nations and rulers. Hey, be, be warned and be wise. You, 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 are in, you are in rebellion against God, but you will not win. In fact, it's utter futility. And he says to them, you can escape this judgment. He says, serve the Lord with fear. Trust in Jesus. Repent of your sin and embrace the glorious news of the gospel. This, this, is, this is the great news, that there is hope, there is help, there is a path away from this rebellion. What they need to do is turn from their sin and trust in Christ. They need to be warned and be wise and serve the Lord with fear. They need to repent of their rebellion. Because the reason that God's wrath doesn't have to fall on them is because Jesus Christ, as the sacrificial lamb took upon himself the fullness of God's wrath. He drank it down to the dregs, and there's no more left in Jesus. And all those who would turn from the rebellion and trust in Christ and receive him, receive the payment for that sin, and no longer have to fear God's wrath. It's not falling on them because they're in Christ. And so I want to I say to any unbeliever here that you can be saved from your sin. You can turn away from Christ, and you can trust, uh, you can turn away from your sin and trust in Christ, and you can escape God's wrath. That, that offer extends to you. It, it's available for anybody who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ. The, the final note has not been written. Jesus isn't here yet, but he is coming quickly. It says in verse 12 that his wrath is quickly kindled. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen quickly. It's not going to happen when you're ready for him unless you turn from your sin now and trust in Jesus. You know, and then it says for you believers, in verse 11, we have this funny phrase. It says, uh, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Well, well what, is, what does that mean? It's kind of an odd idea. I, I try to think about how to explain this. So I, I thought of this illustration probably because my, my oldest son, he's driving now. He's 17, and my second son already has his permit. So now my wife and I are always nervous every time they leave the house because they're driving without us. And oftentimes they're transporting my other three kids. So all four of them are in the car together and we don't know what's going to happen. But I remember when I got my license, I was, uh, I was a new driver back when I was 16. I was driving one time. I was only had my license for a few months. And I was admittedly driving a little too fast. I acknowledge that. And um, the, it was raining and so the roads were slick. And I took this hard turn and my car spun out of control. What, what felt like several rotations, the car just spun out of control. Now, thank the Lord, there was no cars behind me, and there was no structures next to me, and I spun off backwards into this ditch. 
And, and I was remarkably, by God's grace, I was fine, and the car was fine-ish. <laughs> uh, a few busted tires and some bent axles, but it wasn't too bad. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't my car, it was my dad's car. <laughs> but I had to go tell my dad. And uh, I was like, Dad, I'm, I'm okay. I, I, I'm not hurt. But I was, uh, I was rejoicing with trembling, not because I was afraid of my dad, per se, but because I realized, as my heart was still beating fast and I was recounting this story, how close I was to being a lot worse, to being a lot worse. I narrowly escaped a lot worse fate. And you know what? Us Christians, we understand that feeling. Because all of us, all of us rightly recognize that we deserve God's wrath. And we've narrowly escaped God's wrath. Not narrowly because, not narrowly because God's grace is insufficient, but because in left to our own devices, to our own efforts, we could never escape God's wrath. But because of God's grace and God's mercy, which he lavished on us, he freely chose us, apart from anything we've done. Now we can rejoice with trembling because that should have been us. We shouldn't look at all these unbelievers in rebellion against God and look down on them, we should have pity on them because that was us. That was us. Apart from God's grace and mercy, we would be under the same judgment. So we rejoice with trembling because we barely missed what we deserved because of God's grace. So now, how do you repent? What does this look like? What, what does it look like to repent? Avoid God's punishment and wrath. And so here we have this language here. I love this language in verse 12. It says, for everyone who wants to turn away from Jesus, from turn away from God's wrath and embrace Jesus, it says you must kiss the son. Kiss the son. Now this, this kiss is not a friendly kiss. The picture here that the psalm is drawing on is a conquered king who has lost in his rebellion, being drugged into the courtroom of a more powerful king, the conquering king, who's sitting on his throne, and this humbled, conquered king has to come in front of the whole court and kiss the feet of this overlord, conquering king. And in that kiss, he's pledging his allegiance. He's acknowledging his error, and he's repenting of his wrong, and he's embracing the rule of this king. And so what this psalm says is the same thing to unbelievers. You have to kiss the sun. You have to surrender your life. You have to give up your rebellion. You have to acknowledge that Jesus is the reigning king. It's his rule that will prevail. And you want to follow that. And you submit yourselves. And in repentance, you embrace the sun by kissing him and surrendering yourself to him. Jesus rose from the dead. He's now that conquering king. The only hope and help is found in embracing him and in kissing his feet and repenting of your own wayward self and following Christ. You see, the reality is that everyone, everyone will bow the knee to King Jesus. Everyone will. Either you'll do it now by choice or when Jesus comes back, you'll do it by force. But with that comes your utter destruction. So don't wait. Now's the time to kiss the sun. Now's the time to embrace Jesus. Now's the time to flee God's wrath. 
and trust in Christ. You know, the last line of the psalm really brings us back to where we started. Where do we find our hope? Where do we find our help? What is happening in the world? Well, this is where the hope is found. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, the psalm doesn't end in doom and gloom. It ends in a note of hope. It ends with blessing. It ends with the reality that you can escape this coming wrath. It uses this language of taking refuge in him. See, there is a storm coming, but you have to be ready for it. Some of you know, if you were watching the news, that uh, Hurricane Ian just devastated a lot of Florida. It was mostly on the southwest coast, so us here in Jacksonville, the northeast coast, we didn't really have much to worry about. I just had a few twigs in our yard. But for some people, it devastated them. We've already met people that can't even get to their homes because the bridges have been knocked out and the cars were destroyed, all kinds of flooding. When we moved to Florida, people came up to us, and it was like right at the beginning of hurricane season, and they said to us, hey, do you have a hurricane escape plan? I'm like, uh, no. I, we didn't have hurricanes like that where I came from in Vermont. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah, you got to have a hurricane escape plan because if you don't have a plan, what happens is, you know, the, the sirens go off and the, the mayor or the governor announces you got to evacuate, and if you don't have a plan, you just jump in your car with your family and whatever you can carry, and you, if you're in northeast Florida, you just start driving north or west as far away from the coast as possible, and then what happens if you can't find some place to stay, you, you get gouged in price in some hotel, or you start begging people to bunker up with them. It's really not a pretty sight, so you got to have a hurricane escape plan. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I don't have one of those. I don't, that doesn't sound like a very good option to just be begging for some place to stay. So you got to have a hurricane escape plan. Well, in a similar way, in a similar way, I'm saying to all of you, you, there's a hurricane of God's wrath that's coming. It's sure and it's certain. And it is going to crash upon everywhere you live. You can't hope that it's not going to hit where you live. It will hit. But what's your, what's your hurricane escape plan of God's wrath? There's only one option. There's only one option, and it's found in Jesus Christ. And he promises safety and security. He promises you refuge from that storm that's coming. That's where blessing is found. That's where hope is found. You have to turn to the sun. You have to trust in him and you have to kiss the sun. This world is in rebellion against God. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, we are not. We are not on the wrong side of history. God is not surprised. This is all part of his decreed plan. We know the rest of the story. Jesus is coming back. And this time he's coming back as the resurrected and returning king, both to vindicate his people and to destroy his enemies. So so don't despair. Don't despair the state of our world. And don't trust in false hopes. The next election cycle is not going to fix this. The problem is way too systemic for that. But when Jesus returns, he will prove that we are on the right side of history because we are the ones who kiss the sun. Let's pray. 